Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Spawn, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Liz Gumbiner. I'm the co-founder of CoolMomPicks.com. Kristen is out this week, but I am joined by a fantastic guest I know you're going to want to hear from, New York Times parenting editor and author Jessica Gross. We're going to be talking about the state of American mothers today and more. And of course, we'll close out our show with our cool picks of the week. If you don't know Jessica Gross, you definitely know her work. She's the parenting editor and columnist at the New York Times who writes a terrific newsletter also on parenting. She also writes about women's health, culture, and grizzly bears and was named one of LinkedIn's next wave top professionals under 35, a glamour game changer in 2020 for her coverage of the pandemic. She's also a former senior editor at Slate and editor at Jezebel. And I'm sure you've seen her work in all kinds of places besides the New York Times, like New York Magazine, Washington Post, Business Week, Elle, Cosmo. She has a brand new book coming out this year that's going to be all about the historic, scientific, and cultural ideals of parenting and how they do and don't serve us. I cannot wait for that. And we're going to be talking about that and more today, including hopefully her secret love for reality TV, or maybe not so secret. Welcome, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. And it is absolutely not secret. I talk about it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I actually can't believe that we've never had you on before. I feel like we've been chatting and on the Twitters and stuff forever. And now here you are. I finally get to talk (sighs) to you for the podcast. Uh, And I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. And I have to say you're following in the footsteps of many other incredible parenting columnists and editors from Lisa Belkin to KJ Delantonia. How does one become the parenting editor of the New York Times? Well, I actually don't know. <laughs> I always say, you know, whenever I'm asked sort of about my career trajectory, it was never planned in any kind of way. And in fact, if you had asked me 10 years ago, if I wanted to write or edit primarily about parenting, I would have told you no. Uh, you know, I would have said the same thing. And yes, I didn't even think I was going to be a parent, let alone a parenting writer or podcast. Right. So So, I mean, the long story short is that I had many different editorial and leadership roles over the course of 10, 15 years. I wrote, I freelanced, I ran Lenny, a newsletter publication, which I sort of started from scratch. So then when the Times was looking to start a new revamped parenting product vertical section, whatever you wanted to call it, this broad collection of experience made me have the background that just made sense to take on this role. And obviously it is many journalist dreams to ultimately work at the New York Times. It certainly was mine. So I was super excited and honored to be given this job. And then ultimately I ended up switching to a writing only role and moving over to the opinion desk because I have a lot of opinions. (laughs) And the Times, as it should be, is very serious about sort of dividing the newsroom from the opinion side. And there were things I wanted to write about, things I wanted to cover that spilled over into more opinion kind of journalism rather than straightforward reported journalism. So I've been on the opinion desk covering issues around parenting since October, and I'm super happy doing it. And you're so good at it. I just, I love your articles. I love the topics you cover. I feel like you're always writing about like, oh, that's what was on my mind too. Like you just (laughs) have your ear to the ground. And 
that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. I just think you have this incredible macro view of American mothers right now and what we're talking about, what we're thinking, what we need to hear about. What are the big issues right now that you think are impacting mothers? I mean, we know the pandemic and economics we talk about all the time. What else? Yeah. Well, so I mean, does that really overshadow everything? No, I mean, I think we're coming out of that period slowly. I think the way that that continues to impact parents is sort of threefold. Number one, parents of under fives, the kids aren't vaccinated yet. They still have a lot of disruptions to childcare because the childcare industry is still super messed up. I mean, even more messed up than it was before the pandemic. So they are still affected in a sort of day-to-day way in a way that I think other parents might not be as much. Um, Second way is the mental health crisis. A lot of kids have sort of lingering issues from the pandemic isolation. How big that crisis is, is a subject of much debate, but clearly it has created a higher level of anxiety and depression in some subset of kids. So a lot of parents are dealing with that and that's really hard and painful. So that's another way. And then the third way is I keep talking to parents who are like, oh, my life is pretty much back to normal, but I am wrecked. I think burnout might be too strong a word, but some of them describe it as burnout. There just was no recovery period. So it was like, Mm -hmm. you had to do all the things for however long you had to do them. If you're a working parent, you had to do your job on top of your kids being underfoot and deal with all the additional stressors of the pandemic. And even as those are stripped away, you had never had a chance to recover because you're still momming and dadding every day, right? So I think that there's still sort of a lingering, whatever you want to call it, exhaustion, malaise, like everyone just needs a month off from their life even more than they did before the pandemic. So I would say that those are sort of the three ways that pandemic is still, and obviously people are still getting sick. It's not gone away, but it's not how it was even a year ago. Well, I was thinking how about a year ago, you wrote an article in the Primal Scream series that I still think about. I know it was really popular and it was called America's Mothers Are in Crisis. Is anyone listening to them? And I'm wondering what's changed since then? I do think that there has been change. And I actually do think that conversations around paid leave, caregiving, all of these things are so much more on politicians' lips than they were before the pandemic, certainly more than they were five or 10 years ago. I've been covering Mm. these issues for that long. And these are actually issues most often thought of as liberal issues or democratic issues, but lots of Republicans are talking about them too. And as essential, as a backbone of a financial recovery, because if you don't want to talk about it in the sort of touchy-feely, like it's actually good for humanity way, which obviously it is, you know, I think that there's been a lot more people who have convinced that for jobs and government to function, childcare is infrastructure. And I don't think you would have had a lot of people agreeing with that five years ago. I think many, many more people agree with that statement because they saw what happened when it fell apart. So I don't want to call that a silver lining. I don't think that the pandemic was worth that happening. I wish we could have never had a pandemic, obviously, but I am optimistic about momentum and future change in that way because so many more people are aware of it. I mean, Katha Pollitt, who is a great commentator, op-ed writer, wrote something for the Times Opinion section three or four years ago where she basically said the reason that there's not a lobby for childcare is because 
you only need it for a brief period of time. And then once you don't need it anymore, you sort of forget about it and move on. And it doesn't become sort of a primary rallying point for political movement. And I think that has changed a bit. So I'm cautiously optimistic that there will be forward change. And just on things like paid leave, I mean, in the past month, Maryland and Delaware passed paid family leave laws. So at the state level, like stuff is happening. And I think because things are still really hard overall and inflation sucks and don't get me started on the rollback of abortion rights because that is horrifying to me. I think we can forget that we are getting these small wins, especially again on the state level. And it's largely due to moms who are activists. Let's honor the incredibly hard work that they are doing because it is making a difference. Not as quick of a difference as I think many of us would like to see, but like change is happening. I'm really fascinated by that observation. And I don't think I ever kind of articulated it in this way that because the idea of supporting working mothers and providing childcare and family leave is now seen as a bipartisan or nonpartisan issue, it affects everyone, that that's when change is finally starting to happen. People are taking notice. Like it's not a political issue. Um, I mean, obviously everything is political these days. So <laughs> sure. I w- but it's not any one party that has yes. cornered the market on like moms who need childcare. <laughs> right. Listen, I am no fan of Donald Trump, but you must admit that he made the most change that a president has made in a very long time in getting people paid family leave because federal workers got paid family leave under his administration. That is a thing that happened. It is a fact. (laughs) So like that says something. And I think we forget, I mean, again, because everything is politicized and discussion is quite polarized, we can forget that like actually a lot of people want and believe in these things as common goods and as an important thing for our country to value as we move into the next century. Yes. I mean, and it's obviously it doesn't just support moms and women, but if there's paid family leave, as you're saying, it's infrastructure, it supports employers and businesses and whole industries and just opens up opportunities for everyone. So here's to that and to all the activists who are out there making it happen. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned abortion, which I know you wrote about recently, but you've written so many articles over the years before the pandemic as well. So I'm really interested if there's ever been one particular article that you always think about, like something that just shook you up, changed how you parent, changed how you see mothers. Um, That's such a great question. Okay. I, there's like a couple things. One is, and I think I'm thinking about it right now because I just wrote this piece for this week about how miscarriage care and sort of overall women's health care is already being affected by the rollback of abortion rights on the state level. Mm. About seven or eight years ago for Slate, I wrote a piece about the cost of miscarriage because obviously we think a lot about the emotional pain of miscarriage and it's awful and no one wants to go through it. But I had a miscarriage between my two daughters and when I had it, I kept getting bills for it. Like every two weeks after it, I would get a bill for like two or $300 for the, you know, minor surgery I had to end the miscarriage. And I get it. That's how medical bills work, but it was so painful to be reminded. It was like, not only did you go through this, like really not fun thing, but like, here's a bill to not only remind you that you went through it, but also have to pay more money. So (laughs) I did a piece on the cost of miscarriage and the women that I spoke to for that piece just really affected me so deeply. You know, things that are not new probably to the listeners of this podcast or to people in general, but just 
just how intimately health disparities and financial disparities can touch us at the worst moments of our lives and to go through a miscarriage and then have to also worry that it's going to bankrupt you. Like that sucks. (laughs) That goes without saying that that is horrible. But I think about that kind of thing a lot, the sort of knock on effects. And I think that there's unique ways in which American systems make these sort of things harder and more painful than they need to be. That was a bad one. So I'm sorry. Yeah, I bet. And you know, that's why I think it's important for some columnists that are as thoughtful as you are, because you're thinking about this and you're learning about it and you're writing about it means other women are feeling seen or thinking about things that they might not have considered before or that, you know, they're not alone in what they're going through. And I think that's such a positive value that you're providing to moms in general. That's really lovely of you to say. I would say the other sort of overarching thing to answer that question, which is a really animating factor of the book is just doing a ton of historical research and reading women's diaries and letters from the past couple hundred years. And everyone, when they become a new parent, can have the feeling like, why didn't anybody ever tell me that this happened, that it was going to be like this? And if you read women's diaries and letters, especially letters to their sisters, to their mothers, the experiences are roughly the same. And I found that kind of incredibly comforting. You know, I think sometimes we can think like, oh, modern parenting is particularly one way or the other, but there's a way in which these sort of ambivalent feelings are eternal. They're universal, not always being happy all the time, not always loving every second of motherhood. I think sometimes we can look back to the past and think like, oh, mothers probably felt more natural and it was easier. I mean, I don't know why you would think it was easier when there were no toilets or antibiotics, but like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like you can have this sepia tone view of like, maybe this pastoral fantasy would have been easier, but then you read their letters and, you know, obviously the language is antiquated, but the feelings are the same. Yeah. It's like, maybe we had no mommy wars on Facebook, but there were no epidurals either. So a hundred percent. I actually found it very comforting, just normalizing this sort of range of maternal feelings, which I always had felt was an important part of the sort of writing that I do and the way that I think about parenting. But having these hundreds of years of examples of it was just wonderful and validating. And we can look at social media and be like, oh, this person seems like they're just doing it better than me or they're happy all the time. And it's like, we know, number one, that no one is happy all the time, but like no one a hundred years ago was happy all the time. (laughs) I'm glad you brought up social media because I'm curious about where you think that's going as far as parents. You know, when I started blogging, my blog was more like a column when I had Mom 101. I think I wrote more about issues, kind of like this podcast, like things I cared about and things that were going on in the world or responses to articles. It wasn't so much a diary as much as observations and, you know, sometimes humorous things. And and I felt like the community came together through the comments and that's what I loved the most. And then I think social media started doing that as well. And then we kind of moved into this influencer culture where I think moms are feeling like, wow, if I don't get enough likes, I'm not important or I have to show my life in a certain way or, you know, I'm just kind of wondering if that's going to boomerang back to a more honest place again. That's something I think about a lot. And I'm curious if you have a perspective about that. I do. I mean, I think even for an old, because I am now 40, um, I love I I will just tell you as an over 40, you're not an old, but bless you. (laughs) I mean, I meant that only in internet speak. Like for the internet, I am 100% an old. Listen, I have teens. They they think I lived in like 19. 
1932. <laughs> oh my God. My nine-year-old already calls our youth the 1900s. And I'm like, you cannot say that. The 1900s. <laughs> I'm like, it's such a burn. And I'm like, burns above grade level respect. But also, no, you cannot call my youth the 1900s. Yeah, for me, it's when my kids come home from like a vintage store. They go to Buffalo Exchange and they're like, mom, we got this vintage shirt from the 90s. <laughs> Like, oh my God, vintage. That's rude. That is extremely rude. So as an old. As an old, I love TikTok. I look at TikTok a lot. Yeah. And I find that a lot of the more popular moms, or at least the one, it's it's always hard to know because it's like, who are you getting served on the algorithm versus what somebody else is getting served on the algorithm? And when I first started looking at TikTok, I was getting the, what I would sort of say is like a more Instagram mom. So sort of like the toned, beautiful, doing a silly dance, but like never looking bad or weird, Uh that sort of like idealized filtered vision. But as I've continued to look at the app, I actually think that like there's a lot of moms there who celebrate the imperfection. They're really funny. You get a less static vision because obviously it's video. It's not just a still image the way that Instagram is a still image. So you're seeing them just in their sort of natural habitat. Their kitchens are messy. I I don't mean that in a critical way. I mean that in a like, yeah, because they like live in them, you know? It's not like (laughs) Instagram vision where like, has a child ever stepped in this? (laughs) You know, it's like, it feels more like they're living their lives and you're getting a window onto it and it's delightful. So I think we are sort of the internet is so big there's definitely still the influencers there's like the fit influencers there's the wellness influencers my bigger fear about tiktok parenting is i think you have the good which is like this more sort of honest real talk mm-hmm. funny version but then there are a lot of people doling out advice and some of them are experts in their field and some of them are just randos yeah like i don't have the percentages in front of me but a lot of people get advice from social media now oh. Oh, for sure. I saw it on TikTok is the new, I saw it on the internet or I saw yeah. it, I read it on Wikipedia. <laughs> exactly. Let's go for information. As someone who, you know, follows this culture as my beat, my concern now is that it's like, are people going to get damaging and incorrect health information from randos who tell them vaccines will grow them a third ear? Like there's something like sort of authentic about TikTok more so than Instagram. And so I feel like it might be more effective and passing information along. Well, you can't have an aesthetic on your TikTok feed the way you can on your Instagram feed. It's almost like by nature, by the way it's constructed, it kind of requires a different level of spontaneity and authenticity. Even the dances, even the stuff that's planned, it's not like a picture that looks frameable and static and it's just there forever. Yep. So, I mean, what what is your sense of it? You've been observing this culture for a long time. Do you think that we're sort of moving into a more realistic real talk phase again? or I kind of go back and forth on it. I see a lot of like original, like early bloggers wanting to blog again or starting to put up text instead of photos on Instagram because they want to have conversations again. Yeah, You know, we used to be able to write blog headlines that were just vague or funny and then you'd read them. And I think now that there's SEO and it's monetized, you know, even on social media that like the certain words come up or hashtags, like it's forced people to think about like what will get the clicks instead of 
of what will make an enjoyable writing or reading or sharing experience. And I think that's taken away from some of the authenticity. As soon as you could see the counts, not just of comments, but how many people liked it on Facebook, that changed things. So I'm wondering if like changes in social media will lead to changes in how we talk and what that public square looks like and, you know, how we share information. I'm hoping it doesn't go away because I think the parenting community online is so valuable at a time that we're so separated from each other. I mean, the pandemic laid that bare, right? Absolutely. We couldn't even go to the park to meet moms. Like we were literally stuck inside. And I think of new moms all the time who probably would have gone crazy during those two years without, you know, an online community at least. Yeah. So let me just ask you, I want to make sure we get to this. Tell me about your book coming out. What can you tell me about it? Oh yeah. No, I am so nervous and excited for people to read it. I wrote the proposal in the summer of 2020, but it had been based on ideas that I've just been mulling since basically I became a mother in 2012 and had written about in so many different ways for Slate and other places. But since I became a mother, I have felt the ideals placed on mothers in the United States are completely nonsensical and they cause a lot of damage. If you put them against each other, they don't make any sense. Like they're in actual opposition to each other. So one example that I use in the book is if you look at polling, the majority of Americans will say that they think it's better for a woman to stay home with her children. But they also say that the ideal working scenario for a mother is to work part-time. And it's like, you can't do both those things at the same time. Those are Mm. directly contradicting each other. (laughs) Also, parenting is not really part-time and working even part-time jobs is not generally part-time. Exactly. So it's just like, there's all of these demands on what mothers should be that number one, make no sense. Number two, are in direct conflict and opposition to each other. So there, it's just impossible. I love history. And I wanted to trace where some of these ideas came from and why they're still with us when a lot of them, even on the face of them, seem incredibly antiquated. So one example, talked a lot about, I had a very rough pregnancy with my older daughter. I had hyperemesis, which is extreme vomiting and nausea. So I was throwing up all day, every day. Um, I got incredibly depressed because I had gone off antidepressants to conceive and I could not hold any food down. And I don't know about you, but that's the pretty rough. It was not fun. And I had just taken a new job. I found out that I was pregnant on my second day of this new job. And I ended up having to quit after two months because I was so sick. I just was like, I can't do this. And it was an incredibly deep humiliation at the time. I felt like I'm never going to work again. Who quits a job after two months? Everything I've worked for is dead. And then on the other hand, it was a profound relief because this bad thing that I worried about happening had happened. Like I had failed spectacularly and embarrassingly in this moment. And at the time, I also felt like, oh my gosh, I'm already failing at motherhood. I'm not even a mom yet. I'm so sick and I need medication and shouldn't this be natural? And what's wrong with me that like, I'm already failing at this and I'm not even three months pregnant was kind of an overwhelming feeling that I had then. That was really sort of the beginning of when I started interrogating that those feelings. Well, it's like, well, you know, you couldn't control this. Like you're sick. That's okay. It's okay to be sick. Lots of women get sick in various ways when they're pregnant. And where did the idea even come from that it's a quote unquote natural to be happy and healthy while you're pregnant? 
Long story short, there are some ideas from like Victorian eugenicists about how women should behave when they're pregnant, but then also some very influential psychologists and psychiatrists in the mid 20th century who pushed the idea that if you were not happy while you were pregnant, you were neurotic. And it meant that you were not at peace with your own femininity and something was wrong with you. And obviously we don't think those things anymore, but the residue of it stays with us. We have these ideas like, oh, like there's something wrong with me because I'm sick and I'm miserable when I'm pregnant, even though it was a much wanted pregnancy. So trying to sort of just unpack culturally where those ideas came from. And so there's a number of different ideas that I'm saying, like, here's where this dumb idea came from. (laughs) So this is going to like help us sort it all out, basically, is like understand that it's not us, it's not in our heads, that there's certain things that came from a place that was maybe malevolent or not so helpful towards women. And if we know about these things, maybe we can fix it or maybe we'll feel less less bad about ourselves to understand. Exactly. I mean, that's ultimately really the hope with this book is for me, at least it is not a prescriptive book. I don't give advice. I always joke, like, I think it's funny that I am a parenting columnist because I don't believe in parenting advice. (laughs) (laughs) I believe in some advice, but like writ large, kids are so different. Families are so different. It is so hard to do one size fits all about anything, you know? But by hearing all the different advice, I think it allows us to then stop and think about what we know and who we are and what our values are and our goals. And then we make the decisions for ourselves, informed by lots of different opinions out there. And that's always a good thing. And that's so much of what I value about your columns. They're not dogmatic and they're not prescriptive. And you just give me lots of perspectives that help me formulate my own views on things. So from one old to another, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that's like, you know, the book is really trying to say like, hey, a lot of mothers, I mean, I think a lot of parents, but like mothers specifically, because obviously we have so many cultural feelings about how mothers should be feel like these expectations are not working for them, but they feel like they can't reject them because if they reject these expectations, then they're a bad mother. And so by trying to trace and expose where these notions came from and how they're still affecting us, my hope is that the ones that you know aren't your values will hopefully be easier to dismiss without feeling like, oh, I'm bad or failing at this because I didn't meet this expectation, which is like not an expectation that is reasonable or that I should care about. Like if I could have controlled not barfing all day, every day when I was pregnant. (laughs) Naturally, I would have been super psyched to have done that. (laughs) Well, I cannot wait. I'm sure it'll be helpful. And when it's out, I want you to come back so we can talk about that. Oh, I would be thrilled. So if anyone wants to learn more about Jessica, even though she's not on the socials quite as much, you can still find her <laughs> at Jess Gross, G-R-O-S-E on Twitter, at Jess Gross Writes on Instagram or on her website, jessicagross.com. And now it's time for... Cool Picks of the Week! Cool Picks of the Week! And Jess, as our guest, you get to go first. I can't wait to hear what you have. Okay, so I'm going to recommend... Below Deck, which is a Bravo franchise that I think at at this point has five separate shows. There's Below Deck Down Under, Below Deck Sailing Yacht, Original Below Deck, and Below Deck Mediterranean. Okay, that's only four. This is reality, yes. This is reality. Not much, but Kristen does. So I bet she's already binged all of them. Okay, so (laughs) it is a reality TV show that takes place on a yacht, and it is a very upstairs, downstairs premise. Uh... So it's a season on on a chartered yacht. 
And so the people who work on the yacht are the same throughout one season. There's like the captain and the deck crew and the stewardesses and the guests are different, terrible, rich people every episode. Wait, you got to tell me, do they hook up with the crew? No, you're not allowed to do that. Because oh, that's always the good part. Okay. The crew, <laughs> well, the crew hooks up amongst each other just oh, endlessly. So there's shenanigans below deck and shenanigans oh, above deck. And then exactly. But it's called Below Deck because it's mostly focusing on the folks who work on the boat. It's super fun. I have a lot of trouble turning my brain off at the end of the day, but Below Deck really helps me out with that. (laughs) It is low stakes. There's a lot of drunken shenanigans. These are the horniest reality stars I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Like it's... I just, I love it. Currently, I am watching Below Deck Down Under, which is Australian crew. And then there is Below Deck Sailing Yacht, which takes place on a sailing yacht, obviously. You are a um, super fan. Like, <laughs> you're going to give me episode descriptions, aren't you? Like, on season two, episode three. I am <laughs> such a super fan that for my 39th birthday, my husband got me a cameo with a chief stewardess named Kate Chastain, who I love. Oh my gosh. So, yes, I am a super fan. I love it. I love to watch them fold laundry well I fold laundry it's like a zen cone like I'm just super into it so oh, it's that a, is my <laughs> look, whatever I think helps us decompress at the end of the day that's yes. you know not hurting anyone it's all good well my cool pick of the week little different directions we are both Brooklyn moms Jess and I want to give a shout out to the Brooklyn Public Library have you heard about this books unbanned initiative that they launched no. oh what I get to scoop you okay it's so cool so I'm really concerned about all the book banning going on around the country as all thinking people should be. And so the Brooklyn Public Library launched this initiative called, it's like hashtag books unbanned. What they're doing is they're allowing all young people 13 to 21 all over the country to get a free digital library card to the Brooklyn Public Library. So they have free borrowing privileges of all their eBooks and audiobooks without limit, which I think is phenomenal. Oh, I love so it. if our listeners are living in districts that are banning books, get your teen on board or hey, encourage your own local library to do something similar. I think it's so smart. I love that librarians are standing up to fascists as Caroline wrote about in the post. It's on coolmomtech.com. We'll link that up on our podcast page on Cool Mom Picks and all the other links that you heard about today. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Spawn. Huge thanks to my terrific guest, Jess Gross. I'm so glad to finally have her on. Thanks to our production coordinator, Elisa Markowitz, and of course, to our awesome engineer, John Bowen. If you've got a moment and you can leave us a five-star review, we would greatly appreciate your time. And hey, if you do enjoy Spawn, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. It really helps us a lot and we appreciate it greatly. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, you want to chat, you want to say hi, you have a suggestion for another, you can find us on Twitter at CoolMomPics. We are there all the time. I certainly am, as you can tell. Uh, We're also on Facebook, Instagram. We're even on Pinterest, although probably not the best place for chatting. But hey, if you want to share a favorite recipe or like your new kitchen remodel design dreams, (laughs) feel free to check it out. Thank you so much for listening to Spawn. This is Liz. Hopefully Kristen will be back next week. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.